This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where Out of Print is available again. And listeners like you, thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links, and for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner, flying solo tonight, but not completely solo, as you'll find out in a moment. In this episode, number 318, we're going to be taking a bit of a diversion as we talk about other games. Joining us for this episode is the monstrous ecologist himself from the Tome Show's Monstrous Ecologist, Jeremiah McCoy. Welcome back. Greetings and salutations. You don't have to do the voice for the whole episode, though. Um... (laughs) <laughs> or I'm doing that... a voice. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and also on board for this episode is one of the co-hosts of the Tome Show Book Club, our resident French-Canadian, Eric Paquette. Bonjour, hello. Bonjour. Okay, everybody, so here's the thing. Uh, the Tome Show is, so far as I can tell, the longest-running Dungeons & Dragons podcast the internet has ever spawned. Uh, I started it way back in the day because in the golden days of podcasting, there were some shows about games, but none exclusively focused on my favorite game. So I decided to go ahead and start the show that I wanted to hear. But it turns out just because we love D&D doesn't mean we can't also love other games. So the world, it turns out, has room in it for many games and for us to play and love many of those games that are in the world. This episode is all about reviewing one game that we love that D&D players might be interested in, but is not D&D. Each of us is going to present one of those games uh, that we love and talk about it and and be grilled and questioned by the others. So that's the plan for this episode. Before we dig into that, let's mention our sponsor, Noble Knight. They are a game store, both physical and online, that specializes in out-of-print products, but also carries the new, newest and, and greatest things. Uh, my pick for this episode is a little game called Knight's Black Agents. It is a game that James Intercasso uh, from the Don't Split the Podcast Network got me to play a few years ago at Gen Con, and it was a blast. It's a game about playing secret agents of a clandestine organization that are combating the insidious evil of vampires in the world. It's kind of James Bond mashed up with Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, what's more, it, it uses the gumshoe system, which Eric is going to be talking about later. I hope I didn't steal your thunder eric you did not okay great uh you can get the core book from noble knight for as little as 25 dollars. they have a copy that's in near mint condition for 25 dollars, which is like 20 dollars off the normal price so that's a pretty good deal uh check it out at noblenight.com and let them know that the tome show sent you support for the tome show comes from noble knight from noble knight noble knight 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 Thousands of tabletop gamers use a Noble Knight to sell new and out-of-print games and products at a discounted price. Noble Knight will also buy back the game products you aren't using anymore. NobleKnight.com, the brick-and-mortar online store where out-of-print is available again. Tell them the Tome Show sent you. I use Noble Knight. You do? I love it. So, Eric, since I already started talking about a gumshoe-based game uh, with Knight's Black Agents... uh, and you're going to talk about the gumshoe system. Why don't you start us off? Tell us about gumshoe. Well, gumshoe is a 
or role-playing game which focuses more on uh, investigative and finding out clues. In most games, like in D&D, when you're searching a room, you usually do a search check, and if you make a, a if you make the check, you get the, you get find whatever clue there is. If you're doing investigation stuff, if you don't make the check, you don't find it. In Gumshoot, they make it uh, different. You are considered to be an expert in the field. So if you're searching for a clue and you have the search investigative skills or evidence collection, there's series of investigative skills, you will find a clue. You will find what is there and you, the, the GM will tell you, oh, you find that there is scraps on the ground, four scraps on the ground about an inch apart from each other and looks close. And maybe someone who knows wilderness knows will be able to look, hey, look, that looks like a, a clause from a owlbear or something like that. So you can actually go about and fi- figure out what is happening just without making any rolls. Uh, if important. Now, uh, the gumshoe system is not just, oh, so there is rolling in the game. There are general abilities which are more used for action. Those where you get, your character has pull of dice, uh, not pull of dice, pull of points, where you always roll a d6 and you can choose how many points you spend before you make the roll in, in order for purposes of, so you roll the dice and add the number of points you add. It. But since it's a, it's a finite resource per skill, it's more of a risk assessment for basically how much you want effort you want to be able to succeed in that skill. And that's usually used for combat skill, action, seeing all that. And on top of Knights Black Agents, there's about there's a total right now out there are ten different games uh, out there that uses the Gumtree system. And there's more that are coming on and they're they've spanned different genres. Uh, all that. Yeah, Gumshoe yeah. has been around for a long time, hasn't it? Like, didn't wasn't the original Gumshoe from the like the eighties? No, Gumshoe, I believe, was it's celebrated their. I believe it's celebrated their tenth anniversary recently. I'm just checking. When it's, was? It's been around for a bit, but it's not quite eighties old. No. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's uh, um. I remember first hearing about it in the mid 2000s. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I, I'm a fan of it as well. I think it's a great game. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I run a camp, a full on year. Most, yeah. Is the Taurus is the first one and that came out in 2006. So it's been okay. 30. So it's so, been about 12, 13 years. So I was confused because, because of my searching around on Noble Knight, because they have all these old products. They, there actually was a, an old boxed game in 1986 called Gumshoe, but it's a different game, different system. So, oh yeah, that, that was that was a spinoff of uh, a Sherlock Holmes game or something. It looks okay. like. So yeah, but yeah, I I the ones that I've played so far, I've played, uh, I've tried Trail of Cthulhu, which is basically it's Call of Cthulhu. But using the Gumshoe system, and so Call of Cthulhu seems like the kind of system that would do well in sort of this investigation-based um, yes. system, right? Yes, it would. The uh, one uh, I have also done Time Watch, which is a time travel investigative mm. game where 
time has changed. You try to figure out how what event changed, and then you figure out how to resolve. And uh, and also, I play tested their newest one that's coming out, which is uh, Sword of the Serpentine, which is a, a Conan esque sword and sorcery game that are, that is coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've read several of them too. Uh, I've like I've read uh, Knights Black Agents, which, as I said, as as it is, you are Jason Bourne-like spies that are going against a conspiracy, which is happens to be vampires. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're in and out. There, there even is a very interesting campaign called the Dracula dossier, where mm-hmm. it takes. It takes the Bram Stoker's Ringula, you give it as a handout to the players uh, on the in the marginalia of the, that book, which is unredacted because there was added extra stuff. Uh, there are clues that they can know, so people can look at like look at the book, find a clue. Each clue has a number, and that you give the number to the director, the G, the game master, and they. Uh, they, by looking at with looking at those numbers, they form a improvisational campaign. Hmm. Uh, yeah, there's a lot for for Knights Black yeah. Agents uh, around that concept, and and yeah, yeah and there's also the Cthulhu thing. Like like uh, Gumshoe seems to have been well adapted for like yeah. the the different sort of horror genres uh, yeah. in that way. Well, but it's not limited to that no. by, by any means. No. Um, I, I think uh, one of my the, the first one I, I got turned on to for gum for Gumshoe was uh, uh, Mutant City Blues, where you yeah. play mm. police being uh, the superhero beat or the mutant beat, um, and uh, you know you got super powered characters, and they're about to come out with a second edition of that, I think. Okay. Yeah, they're working. From what I heard, there's also Ashen Stars, which is a more of a uh, sci-fi. Space sci-fi, a bit like Star Trek, which has a more investigative, if you look in a, a Star Trek episode. They also even have Lorefinder, which is adapting Pathfinder to, for towards Gumshoe. Hmm. So the, so for those who are, play D&D, Pathfinder is, is, is also cl- closely adjacent being an adaptation of D&D 3rd edition. So and, Lorefinder could be another way for... A D&D gamer to, to, to do it to, to do a different type of D and D style game, yeah. right? Yes, and and, and it. And lo- me- oh, go ahead. I was going to say that the, the mechanics of it uh, is uh, interesting, just from their default assumptions, right? In, in most role playing games, your default assumption is you roll your interaction with uh, any kind of. Uh, thing of uncertainty for the player is they roll and see what the results are mm-hmm. in in gumshoe it's well is this an investigative skill yes then you get something right always period yep. there is no i roll to see if i i find out something so there is no blocker to the mystery going forward you don't run into a situation where everybody rolls badly and suddenly you can't give out the cool clue right that tells them what's next yeah and the investigative skills are not limited to just getting clues you can have other situations for example let's say you have a your 
diplomacy where you're you have points in in diplomacy where you can uh diplomacy by just talking to someone you will find out what's the the bad guy maybe is doing mm -hmm. or all that but what you could do you could spend extra points maybe turn a someone who sort of works for the bad guys to, to be able to help out or maybe open a door to you know, so you can access right. something so the basic or, so the basic level success is automatic but then if yeah. you if you want to spend the points and and make the role you can get additional sort of benefits from having been successful well for the investigative skills you never make a role you would, for those extra things you would spend a point okay and to get that that extra side benefit that is not might not be related specifically to to resolve the plot but it, it is an extra benefit okay i'll spend two points because i have two points uh to, to make that the this uh this underling of the villain will turn uh, in the final fight will turn on on his uh, boss and help me out to mm -hmm. defeat him mm -hmm. stuff like that uh, where your role would be for your action. So if okay. you have your, your melee skill for your sword, you you basically, okay, I'm going to spend three points and roll a d6. And, and so, because so I kind of have one d6 plus three right. to be able to see if I hit the, the target. Great. It, the advantage too is though, if you know that a skill is for, for a role, you need a five or higher, you can spend four points and you don't need to make the roll. And you're guaranteed you, to get it. Those, but you still spent four points. And how how many different. points? How many points does a typical character have? An expert in, for the general okay for the general abilities, which are the action abilities. When you have eight points or more, you are considered an expert in that in that skill. Okay. And thus, usually you get a booster on top of that, uh, which are uh, I suppose. But so, so that's for experts. So. Mm -hmm. And, I, and so it, it kind of scales up and down from there. It scales up yeah. and down from there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, it, and it seems to me that predominantly Gumshoe is being published by Pelgrane Press. Yes? Yeah. Predominantly, yeah. yes. Although there is uh, there is Bubble Gumshoe, which is for the uh, teen, so Hardy Boys, Victoria Mars. I was thinking Scooby-Doo, but okay. Scooby-Doo also <laughs> is, is also another, another option of basically and that is published by evil hat right have any have either of you ever played bubble gumshoe i have not played bubble gumshoe i have played uh nice flex uh briefly knights black agents and uh um uh, i got to play time watch with the guy who wrote it which was nice oh cool uh, um but uh, I, I have not gotten a chance to play Bubblegum Shoe. It is definitely the one I would pick up if you were wanting to just do a murder mystery. If you like, if you didn't want any supernatural mm -hmm. elements and just wanted a mystery, that's actually the the one I would pick up. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and I think there's a lot of interesting things going. On. And it's interesting that like you have this core sort of investigative system, and it's so adaptable that it's been used in so many different games. Yeah. Yeah. So. In fact, in Swords of Serpentine, it, it, it has been used because when I played that, uh, it, it has been used instead of being towards clues and doing mystery. It's it is they use it as leads for what is there to do in the city, mm. of what's happening and all that. So it is a so it's not 
So it, it is now starting to open up to being those. Plus, there are two. If you if you're low on players, and you only have one player show up, there are games. There are two uh, games that are one on one. There's Cthulhu Confidential and recently a nice black alien solo ops which permits you to do, do one-on-one interaction which works well in a investigative format mm-hmm. so so here's my next question then uh and we'll probably talk about this for all of our games but uh i guess why would a D player be interested in this game and what can we learn from this game that would make our D games better I guess that's two questions. Uh, the the more important thing to learn for a Indian gamer is basically don't if you have important clues that, for or information that you want to have some the group find out. Mm-hmm. Have it made available without really needing a role. Or and this is, and I've I, I've heard discussions of of the Gumshoe system and played it a little bit. Here's my, the way I tend to it to adapt this concept: is I'll make him do the search role. Either way, they're going to find the cool clue yeah. that I want that I planted because that's going to propel the story forward. But if they fail the role, they find the clue with, you know, maybe there's a consequence, you know, they trigger a trap yeah. or they get, they, they make too much noise and uh, the nearby monsters hear them or whatever, right? Yeah. Or if they don't, uh, if they succeed, uh, I'll even, you know, depending on the levels of success, not only do they find it, but maybe they find it and there's some extra like, oh, and you notice this uh, fingerprint smudged on the back of the map and you, you know, you, that you may get some clues about who might be messing with you or whatever. Um, yeah. So, so by you, you can either like basically have the clue be there and available in homes and the role determines something else. Either they can get, they can ask more questions about it and get more information mm-hmm. or, uh, or having co- consequence happen if they did a bad job. Uh, well, so, uh, those so basically that's one very concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And D and D has, I mean, D and D stories tend to have a lot of investigative elements in them. Yeah. Uh, to, that this would work. You know, one of my favorite published uh, Wizards of the Coast D and D Fifth Edition adventures is uh, Dragon Heist, which is not in fact a heist; it is an investigation story. Um, yep. I could absolutely see somebody saying, "Hey." While we're going through this and we're doing the investigative pieces, let's not use the fifth edition rules. Let's run it as gumshoe, and then we'll just switch back yep. and forth between fifth edition for the combat. Yeah, yeah. And, it, it, it's um, it's so when you're asking the question, why would D and D players be interested? Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of the the answer to that question has to be. This is going to give you some things that D and D isn't giving you. Mm-hmm. Um, the the style of play, the focus of play, is different than D and D. So you know that that's going to be the answer uh, on pretty much any other game. Um, you know, if like even Pathfinder, which is very D and D like, you you know. The, You're getting the a different style of play game. is 
yeah, are you are you getting something out of this that you're not getting out of something else? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Gumshoe is a very different style of play, uh, and it ranges based on the game. Like Yellow King is a very different uh, setting and uh, system <laughs> assumptions than say you know the sword of the serpentine which is a little more uh familiar to dnd players as far as it's it's set up at least um so you you've got a, a wide range of what you can do with this system and part of the answer to the question is what is it giving you that that you can't get in dnd and what the answer is a a a, a range of mechanical uh, iterations that you just can't get out of the standard D20 system. Okay. All right. Any last thoughts on Gumshoe before we move on to our next uh, game to review? My my favorite so far has been Time Watch. Okay. Um, it yeah. is so gonzo fun. Yeah. Um, and I'm also looking forward to... Uh, getting a chance to play Sword of the Serpentine. I signed up for the playtest and uh, uh, I got sick for like a month. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, yeah. and Stop doing that! Couldn't schedule uh, a, a playtest session to uh, to try it out, but uh, yeah. I did what I saw in the rules. Yeah. But yeah, those, those two I think would probably be the most appealing to people who are pretty comfortable with what D&D is. Mm-hmm. Because Time Watch is kind of high adventure gonzo craziness. I mean, the first session I played, I played a psychic uh, velociraptor uh, <laughs> from an alternate timeline. Of course you did. Um, and somebody else played an actual historical figure who, you know, if you go look them up in the history books, actually existed. And somebody else was playing like a that's hyper intelligent eight. It's super gonzo and high adventure, um, and I think that's a probably a good one for a lot of people who are looking for a transition point into the system away from D anD. d That's a good choice. When Sword of the Serpentine comes out, that will be definitely a good choice. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, I ran a Time Watch for over a year as a campaign, and. Uh, there were several members of the group that basically played D&D and they had fun playing it. Yeah. And yeah, so there's Gonzo. One of my favorite things also of the game is for, that applies to most of the Gumshoe games, is there is a skill called preparedness. Uh, it is it is a general ability skill, so it's not investigative on that. And basically, preparedness is something you check to see if you brought the thing that you needed. So you you have a check uh, like oh did did I bring that rocket launcher and you mm. you, ch- you you spend the points on his check. In Time Watch, the twist is you can that you can also do is you can pull a Bill and Ted's right. adventure of oh after this is over we're gonna go set this up. Set this up. Yeah. So, <laughs> so in the game, you the preparedness is that's how you do it. You basically mm-hmm. you roll C and you as long as you. The cabinet has not been opened yet, and you haven't seen inside of it because you don't cause a paradox. You can make your paper nose and find 
also my favorite so far that my group has done is uh, it was a preparedness flashbacks scene that was done at the final session as they were preparing to make a big assault against uh, uh, time-traveling time cockroaches that want to cause that want to cause their post-apocalypse future earlier so they can thrive. So the group was trying to stop that by getting an army and one of the players uh, she did a flashback of someone was putting post-it notes on some of their equipment every session and base and, and sending them back to their base and she made a link that all these notes she was providing those post notes and there was a little micro dot that gave instructions to send people at this specific time so they can <laughs> have an, an army and it was like that just linked a whole campaign all together in there just that one action and it was, that was amazing beautiful so really fast because uh, we're going to spend half the episode it looks like on gumshow <laughs> yeah. um really fast though uh if I'm a D&D player, I've only ever played D&D, and there's a lot of people right now, as the game has been growing super fast, there's a lot of people that have only ever played D&D. How easily am I going to pick up Gumshoe? Very easy. It is a very simple... So there's, you don't the, use that much dice, you only use a D6, but it is very easy to, mm-hmm. to get in. Yeah, the basic mechanics are, are simple enough that it shouldn't be too hard to understand them. Okay, great. So let's move into uh, Jeremiah's uh, system or game of choice that he wanted to talk about, and that is the Age system from Green Ronin. Uh, Correct. And and I have played uh, well. Well, Jeremiah and Eric have played a lot of Gumshoe, and I've played very little. Uh, I've actually played a good amount of specifically Fantasy Age, which is the fantasy, I guess, generic fantasy incarnation of the system. So. Jeremiah, tell us about Age. So Age uh, stands for Adventure Game Engine. Uh, it was originally developed for the under the underpinning for the Dragon Age role playing game. Uh, Dragon Age for people who don't play video games, I guess, um, is one of the more popular uh, video game lines, which sort of shares some DNA with D- D&D. Uh, yeah. It's produced by BioWare, who also produced the Baldur's Gate games. So it has some some tie-ins there. And even even if it if it wasn't that, like it's it's a, a a more or less traditional high fantasy setting and story that feels familiar to a D&D player, I think. Yes, and I I think that the the, the setting is actually really compelling for Dragon yeah. Age. Um, anyway, at some point, uh, Will Wheaton ran Dragon Age on tabletop mm-hmm. and decided he wanted to do a, another role-playing game uh, via tabletop. Uh, and he wanted to use that system. And they sort of came around to like, all right, we'll just make a generic version of the system and file off all of the Dragon Age stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's how we ended up with Fantasy Age. It's also how we ended up with Titan's Grave, which was the first setting for Fantasy Age uh, once Fantasy Age became a separate thing. Right. First or um, only? Say again? First or only? First. Okay. Have there been uh, more because... sense? Uh, 
they later came out with Blue Rose, mm-hmm. uh, which was originally released as a different uh, under a different system, but the new version of Blue Rose uh, came out under the Fantasy Age system. Oh, okay. Um, the Blue Rose uh, Romantic Fantasy mm-hmm. uh, game, um, and um, those are the two Fantasy Age uh, settings that they have had, sort of. There are a couple of others that are worth mentioning. Um, first, Freeport has had some uh, versions of it cooked up for Fantasy Age. Mm-hmm. Um, and Freeport is the sort of generic fantasy setting that Green Ronin uh, publishes. Well, I don't know about generic, but it's a non-system specific uh, or right. a non-setting specific. It's like this. It's like a a fully fleshed out, detailed setting that, uh, but it's basically contained to an island that you can stick in any any setting. Right, and I don't mean generic as in it's not that distinctive. Right. I mean as in they've ported it over to like three or four different games. Yeah, uh, it's it it is it's been done for. Uh, D&D, Pathfinder, uh, Fantasy Age, uh, Fate. Uh, it's, it's, it's been done for a lot of things. Yes. Also, Midgard. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original campaign setting book had stats for things in Fantasy Age uh, conversion. And they also published a, uh, a uh, Fantasy Age bestiary for Midgard. Hmm. Midgard is the Kobold Press setting that uh, has largely been Pathfinder, but recently uh, they've done a version for 5th edition D&D as well. Right, and these days it's almost primarily just 5e. Yeah. Um, And then, somewhere along the way, uh, they decided, you know what, this age system's doing pretty well, let's try something else. So they came up with Modern Age. Mm -hmm. And Modern Age is like Fantasy Age. Uh, but set for modern roles, obviously, and science fiction setups. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the underpinning for The Expanse, uh, which uh, wildly popular science fiction novel and uh, novel series and TV series that you can watch on Amazon Prime. Um, it you know it's really good series. One of my favorite science fiction novel series of all time honestly mm-hmm. uh, they got the, the rights to do that and they're using modern age to do it and then there's Lazarus which is a near future uh, dark dystopian future setting uh, based on a comic series by Greg Rucka mm. uh, that uh, the, the premise is that uh, the um, corporate interests and rich families have uh, brought up a neo-feudalist society, and um, they keep it in, keep their power by having access to their Lazarus. Uh, each family has a Lazarus, which is a almost immortal killing machine, hmm. um, and they have all the hypertech is with the corporations and the 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 big. The, the rich families and everybody else is sort of either serfs um, you know basically they, they're servants uh, of the families 
or their waste, mm-hmm. uh, that they're not quite people. So both Gumshoe and and the Age System, it seems, are are well noted for flexible systems that have spawned many different sort of settings and iterations and different types of sort of genres of stories that you can tell within them. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So and and, and so talk a little bit about the system. How does how does the Age System function? So the age system is remarkably simple at its core. It's roll 3d6 and uh, add uh, your um, skill or attribute uh, and focus. Um, So, or your ability and focus. Mm -hmm. So uh, say you've got a, a, a difficulty of 11, you're rolling 3d6 and you're adding plus two because of the ability that you're using and maybe another plus one because you're you've got a focus in something that's relevant to it very simple system Mm -hmm. super easy except then they add an extra layer to that when you uh, are rolling you have one die that is different from the other two Um, that's called the stunt die and if you roll uh, doubles of the same number on any of those three dice, you take the number that's on the stunt die, and that's the number of stunts that you generate. And you can spin those stunts to achieve various effects. Um, those effects can uh, be as simple as a little bit of extra damage, uh, or it can be as uh, in-depth as sort of a narrative thing so you know if you you could spend those stunts in in some iterations of the system to say previously i put uh the uh the tracker on the guard so i know where he is Hmm. and that helped and that gives me advantage on this particular uh, stealth check and that's why I knew where to stand when he went walking by uh, that's something you could do with some executions of the system there's a whole range of cool abilities that you can use certainly the magic is uh, in the system is influenced by your use of stunts you want to have so many stunt points to be able to execute certain kinds of magic uh, but the the core system is super simple and then they add iterations above that yeah that's sort of my impression of of the age system in general is that so i was first introduced to the age system back when dragon age was new and actually enrique bertrand who people may know as newbie dm um played a game for me in in the lobby of a hotel at gen con one year and, and then when fantasy age came out and titan's grave i watched that series and became intensely interested and again at gen con uh, they they had a several boxes they brought out and, and it sold out like instantly and i managed to grab um a copy of each fantasy age and titan's grave and and my impression of the system and the game is that it is simultaneously way simpler than D, but at the same time like so much more like customizable than D and D, if that makes sense. Like it, it's just an easier game to learn and to grasp quickly. Um, but at the same time, you can mix and match all these little different moving pieces to create the, you know, an infinitely more 
varied uh, combination of things for your characters or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I, I think that uh, I, I've I've said that Fantasy Age is sort of how I would design D&D today if I didn't have the baggage of D&D. Yeah. Well, because like, ultimately, when you're making a Fantasy Age character, there's only like four, was it three or four classes? It's been a while since I there, played it. There are three classes. There's, yeah, so there's only three classes, but the choices you make within those classes can make them fit into all of the various roles of D&D. And then when you hit that like second tier, it kind of feels like, oh, well, this... This new, like, you kind of pick up other, I don't remember what they're called, but they're, like, other classes that you pick up mid-tier or whatever. What, do you remember the names of those? Yeah, um, trying to remember the, the proper title for them. I keep wanting to translate it to prestige classes in my it's head. Ki- and it's I kind of like that, but it's not, yeah. Are they, are yeah. they like, uh, specializations? Well, but you kind of you kind of move on from your core class and move into this other sort of secondary class uh, at a certain right. point. And when you do that, um, it kind of feels like, oh, well, you should go from you know a, a spellcaster into this this thing here because it's kind of a specialized spellcaster. But you specialization don't, specialization. But you don't okay. actually have to do that. You could go from you know playing the the warrior and plate mail armor to picking and then jumping into a specialization that's more magic based and and create all these interesting weird combinations that you then have the the fun of telling the story of explaining why that's happening you know and and it should be noted that when age uh, modern age came out they eliminated classes oh did they Uh, yeah, they eliminated classes and they eliminated races. In modern age, but in fantasy age, it's obviously still there. Yeah, in fantasy age, it's still there. In modern age, it's not. Okay. And that's more in keeping, I guess, sure. with, you know, the genres that you're trying to reflect. Um, Although one of the but, things I really liked was their races system, right? I really liked the idea in their races that, like... Because, you know, like if, you, if I want to play a, a dwarf in D&D, I look up the dwarfs and, and here's the, the things that change. When I look up a, to play a dwarf in Fantasy Age, there's, you know, X, Y, and Z are the attributes that you get for a dwarf. And then there's a table of random other things that you add that are all really dwarfy things, but none of which really have to be part of a dwarf. And so you can kind of choose or roll randomly. Um to to add these other qualities and i think that's a really neat concept because it, it it's like oh well, yeah dwarves are more likely to be this way but not all of them have to be that way so now your races aren't so uh, homogenous if you will sure and they do that with backgrounds in modern age a similar setup but yeah it, uh, the um uh, I yeah I I'm I'm a fan of the system. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time trying to convince people to come play Fantasy Age mm-hmm. because people end up going, well, why wouldn't I just play D and D? Oh, because it's such a you know what I found. Um, I I and and this is anecdotal, but I ran a Fantasy Age game for my after school gaming club one year for a bunch of kids who have never played D and D before, and it is so much. It's such an so much easier of an on ramp of a game. Like they grok that game so much faster than D and D, where you'd have to spend an entire session or two just making characters and teaching them how the game works. We could jump into Fantasy Age in like fifteen minutes, and we were rolling dice and playing and telling the story, and they got it. They understood it. Um, 
I, I, that's what where I feel like Fantasy Age really sings is that you can tell these kinds of stories and jump straight in and not have to worry about like spending hours and hours getting to know the game. Yeah, and and uh, I I have an easier time finding people who are interested in playing my modern age games just because hmm. you know it's it's a little something it's, different. It's something different, but I like Fantasy Age by itself, and I really would like to find a, a, a put together a good active mm-hmm. game of it. Um, but yeah, the the selling point for people who are already invested in D anD D is harder uh, because you're you're like, yeah, we're going to play a fantasy game, and they're like, but why wouldn't I just play D anD already know D anD Why do I want to learn a, a, this other thing? But it's such a fun, simple game. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> try it out, yeah, guys. It <laughs> Um, my uh, my limited experience with it is with Dragon Age, mm-hmm. yeah. And I have in the background the idea of possibly doing a Dragon Age campaign in the near in the future. But uh, one thing I also like about the stunt is is that it's not just limited to those list of stunts. You can do for extended stuff. So mm. uh, where if you, it takes a if the, if it takes a while to get, to craft something, basically your stunt die will determine the pace you're going to go. Mm-hmm. Or if you're doing opposed roles in the purposes of, let's say you're playing a game of poker and you want to see who knows for every hand, everyone rolls the stunt die is whoever is in the lead. And after, and basically you do a certain number around and whoever has committed the most stunt accumulation stunt point is the overall winner of, of the game, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So it has that flexibility that I enjoy well, and the stunts are add in an element, even if you're just thinking about them in terms of like combat, right? In D and D, you're you're doing a combat, and you might describe what's happening in various ways, but mechanically, I rolled, I hit, I did this amount of damage, and that's that's what's happening, right? Uh, the stunts add in this extra element of oh no, I didn't just hit, I hit, and it was a penetrating hit that goes through them and hits the next person, and I can pull that off because I rolled the right stunt uh, points to to do that, you know, and I, and you can sort of choose from the table and do some crazy things like it allows a more narrative uh, mechanical support for the for what's going on even in, in a combat or other uh, skill roles or whatever yeah and for D&D dungeon masters if you play fantasy age all that each monsters many of the monsters have their specialized uh, specialized mm. stunts that they can bring in so you have that flexibility so if you like those specialization that which something that makes it unique uh, that you're familiar from D and D, you will find that you will also find that in the age system. And I find that the and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jeremiah, because you've had a lot more experience with it than I. Uh, but I, I find that they've worked on Fantasy Age. They, they, that flexibility that you have for the simplicity and flexibility that you have in character creation also exists in terms of like the monsters. Like if you look at the bestiary, you usually oh, yeah. you usually have like this generic sort of name for a monster, and it's sort of implied. Oh well, this could be, you know, this could be a troglodyte or a lizard folk or whatever it is you need to be. Just use this stats and skin it the way you need to skin it. Yeah, and they, they they include guidelines for for adding templates to them, changing them up mm-hmm. uh, in the B series itself. Uh, they recently came out with a Fantasy Age companion, so they are you know while they may have uh, uh, created uh, Modern Age to support like these other licensed properties, I think, but they they are still supporting Fantasy Age. Uh, they also mm-hmm. just recently came out with another book for Dragon Age. 
um, the, the Faces of Thetis, I think is the latest one. Mm. So, yeah, they're still doing it. Um, I, I think the easiest selling point for me on getting somebody who's used to D&D to come play Fantasy Age is actually Dragon Age. Um, oh, I was gonna because, say I was gonna say haven't watched Titan, the Titans Grave uh, YouTube channel because that's what got me hooked. Well, it's, the Titans Grave one was a lot of fun, and I, oh, I agree a, with you there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I can, you know, I certainly know a lot of people who have played Dragon Age. I suppose. And just telling them, hey, you wanna, you wanna play Dragon Age? I right. mean, you got the rules for it. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, now you hit on you hit on something which is literally my only critique. I think of Fantasy Age. As much as I love the system, um, you talked about how they're still supporting it, but you've talked about like two books that they've put out, right? The Bestiary and this Companion. That's pretty much the only support they've put out in how many years has this game been out? Like five, six years? Um, actually, <laughs> yes. I mean, if if you if you include the Dragon Age system, even longer, right? But right, so they've got the Fantasy Age, Bestiary, and Companion. Mm-hmm. They also have a series of encounter books. Uh, they have adventures. Uh, they've got like they some short some... encounters, right? I remember seeing some of that in in the PDF store. Yeah, these are the like the encounters they run. Um, they've got uh, they they have turned out uh, extra. Uh, player options, uh, uh, you know, uh, and and monsters okay. uh, via uh, you know, like PDF products. Uh, the you know, so there there's a lot there on top of the stuff that was published for Blue Rose. There's a couple of books for that. There's you know, obviously the multiple books for Dragon Age. Uh, there's the stuff that was done for Midgard. Right. Uh, I guess it my, was a my, break, my a my... regular uh, thing in. Uh, and the Cobol Quarterly, actually, most, they did with a, a good number of those magazines had stuff expanding upon the the, the system. Yeah, my, my biggest, I guess, frustration with it is like I was really interested in it. I wanted to run a campaign and they didn't give me a, enough adventures to tell a story. They didn't give me a setting to do anything with. It was a generic system, so I guess I get that, right? And they had a more specific system, and the one that brought me to the table was Titan's Grave, and then things happened, and we got one book of Titan's Grave, and it was outright said, two. there'll be more. We got two? Two, yeah. What do you mean by we got two? There was uh, an adventure for it as well. Well, the, there was the one, that's, that was the first season, right? What are you talking about? Uh, there was a. If there was another adventure. one, that's unless, unless you're there was like a really short like PDF adventure. Is that what there you're talking about? The Hermit's Road. I yeah, think yeah. I've I I I read it, ran that one right. Yeah, yeah. But that's just really a one shot. That's not really. I can't do a lot with that, right? So so like that's what brought me to the table, and then that's what made me like, oh, I, this is the story I want to run. And then they didn't like, I don't know. Green Ronin is fantastic, and I love the people who work there, and I love the work that they do. I just sometimes I wish they would like they develop something awesome. I wish they would stick with it and give me a whole bunch of it instead of like <laughs> now let's do it with only this, and now let's do the same thing but this, and 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 the way they kind of do they 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 seem to be a company with a little bit of ADHD where they jump around a lot and don't stick with anything for very long. Yeah, well, currently they seem to be focusing on modern age and expanse mm-hmm. role playing game. Sure. Uh, and, uh, admittedly, they just they had a very successful uh, Kickstarter for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've already gotten my PDF for it, and I'm liking what I've seen in the PDF. Um, 
another thing that is worth noting uh, is that you can uh, uh, get some quick start rules for a number of these things Mm. so that, you know, anybody who wants to check it out before they buy, uh, the quick start rules are out there and they're free. Yeah, that's that's great. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, and if, if my biggest complaint uh, for a game system is I wish I had more of it, that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty strong endorsement, too, I think, right? So, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think uh, I think it's a, a complaint I, I, I feel. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 uh, like, when Fantasy Age came out, uh, initially, I was like, this is great. Titan's great. It's cool. But... Mm-hmm. But now uh, what? <laughs> what? What? What are we doing next? Mm-hmm. And then there was nothing for years. I mean, it took him like a year to get the bestiary out. Yeah, and then and then uh, after that, they came up Blue Rose, um, which is fine. It's a it's a good little uh, setting. But they only come out with a couple of books for it. And I think part of that may be that we are ruined. <laughs> by we're spoiled D&D. by D and D, maybe. Yeah. yeah, um that you know comes out with so many books so often, and even well, even like, they're they're down to like two or three a year. That's all I'm asking. Like if they put out one fantasy age book a year, I'd be happy. But there we are. I, I, <laughs> I, I like so. You know, most of us I think played during the third edition days. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly played during. First edition, box edition, second edition days too, but third edition is when we reached peak. Oh yeah, splat book, right? Peak, peak glut publishing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, and uh, so fourth yeah. edition came along, and they were doing a, a, like a book a month, it seemed <laughs> like, and and Pathfinders out there, and it's doing like a bunk book or two a month, and then you run into a game from a publisher who doesn't have deep pockets. Mm-hmm. And what do you mean they're doing a book a year? No, I'd be happy with a book a year. That would give well, me, that would give me five fantasy age books and I have three. <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> yes. The fantasy, age, the fantasy age basic rule book came out in 2015. The basic era came out in 2016. The companion came out last year in 2018. They've had encounter stuff in 2017, <laughs> so you basically have had well, okay. stuff about once a year. But I don't have the specific books that I want. <laughs> yeah, I, okay, I want to. I want to tell a campaign, and they're not bu- telling me how to build a campaign. Now, I, very easily, I could just take materials from other games and and run it in Fantasy Age and do what I want to do. Right? That would work right. fine. Um, but. I, I don't know. They've got some really cool ideas. I want to see how this develops. And there are certain like things within the character creation process that assume and imply a specific setting uh, or certain concepts of a setting. I'd, I'd like to see that. I don't know. I'm just, I like to whine. I want more and, and I want them to give me more of the specific uh, things that I want. So there. <laughs> I, 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 one of, uh, uh, you know, I, I've recently like in the last year back, I, Started toying with an idea of coming up with my own fantasy setting, and it, initially I thought, "Well, I'll do this in D anD." d And then I thought, "You know what? I'd actually like to do it in is Fantasy Age." I think that would be fun. Yeah, um, I, w- I wish they had uh, uh, an SRD or whatever. I don't think they do, 
because because then because then somebody could publish all the stuff that I want and I would be perfectly content to 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 buy third party stuff. Yeah, um, but yeah, I I I I have a fantasy setting in mind, and I thought, you know what, maybe Fantasy Age is better choice because there you go. You know, in some regards, the the sort of freeform nature of Fantasy Age makes it easier to build whatever the heck you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, that said, I am super excited about the expanse. I am a huge, absolutely huge fan of the expanse, um, and I am not alone in that. <laughs> no, I hear a lot of good things about it. I watched like three episodes of the show, but I I watched all three seasons. It's been three seasons, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I've watched. I've watched all three seasons. It is a great series to watch. Yeah, so. I've, I've watched all the shows and read all the novels and the novellas, and even the new short story that they wrote for the for the role playing game. <laughs> like, I, so you're I, a fan. I, I'm a huge fan, and I am not alone in that. There are people who can have entire conversations in Belter Creole, um, <laughs> uh, and I can I can almost hang with that. Um, occasionally, I have to re sort of get my head right to to be able to do it. But so, and they've got that in age system, and I'm probably going to get. Uh, be wrapped up in a game for that because oh wow but yeah their fantasy age system is great uh, Lazarus if you haven't actually checked out the comic Lazarus uh, by Greg Greca mm-hmm. the, they've got the role playing game for it it's a really dark <laughs> dark dystopian future mm-hmm. uh, and um, Greg Greca is my favorite comic writer so there you go. Uh, I, 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 I would be interested in uh, doing that game as well. So too many games to play, not enough time. Uh, Absolutely. Speaking of which, we have now gone almost 55 minutes <laughs> with, with your guys' games. Um, I have another game that I was going to talk about. I could talk about it. We'll go a little long. Uh, but at the same time, the game that I'm going to talk about is Torg Eternity, and I've talked uh, a decent amount about it on Behind the DM screen as well. So I could do just an abbreviated version, because if people want to know more, they're probably listening to Behind the DM screen already uh, and can hear about me talk about it there all the time, because it's my it's my go-to game when I can't get enough people together to play D&D, or I can't get the right people together for the next part of the story or whatever. Uh, we play the heck out of some Torg, and sometimes... Um, Sometimes I'm happy to you know miss D and D every now and then because I really enjoy playing Torg. Have either of you played uh, either the original or the new version of Torg? I have not. I never... have... Sorry. Yeah, never played your Torg or Torg Eternity. Okay. Jeremiah, I have never played, though I did read some of the books in the original release. I it. It came out around the same time as like Rifts and a couple of other yep. sort of Gonzo games, mm-hmm. and I got into playing Rifts instead of Torg, but I was very much aware of Torg. <laughs> right. No, I was the exact same way. Like I was vaguely aware of Torg. I actually played Rifts once or twice. I never played it much, 
but I was aware of Torg or whatever, and I was like, oh, this seems interesting, but I've got other things I'm playing right now. I'm, I, and I was at that point, I was a kid, so it's like I can't really afford to be buying a bunch of other stuff, right? Um, but then I saw they were rebooting Torg with Torg Eternity a few years ago. They kickstarted it um, successfully. They've then now since they've done uh, a total of three kickstarters for Torg. Uh, for each one, they go to a different one of the realities that's invading the Earth. So the idea behind Torg Eternity is a setting, and I'll just do it really, a really sort of abbreviated version for time. Um, the idea behind Torg Eternity and Torg in general is um, the Earth is being invaded by other realities. Uh, so there's these other realities, and and they're and these other realities have already been sort of conquered by the High Lords of the, each of those realities uh, and drained of all of their possibility energy. But it turns out our Earth is so full and ripe with possibility energy that no single High Lord can conquer it. And so they all sort of collude together and invade simultaneously on the same day. And so you have your... Um, you have a pocket in like the North America of what's called the living land. And it's sort of the, the savage uh, jungles with dinosaurs and dinosaur people. They're called Edenos uh, running around and, and everything, uh, you know, the world laws of that reality is such that like, um, you know, technology and machines and, and metal and things like break down and rust and fall apart really quickly and really easily. And there's sort of this savagery to the, to the setting and life sort of takes over everything. Right. And then there's the, uh, your traditional high fantasy setting of, of England and uh, the Scandinavian area, which is called Isle. And so that's, you know, dragons and, um, you know, monsters and people running around with, with swords and casting magic spells and what have you. And then uh, just south of there in France is the cyber papacy. It's sort of the, the big brothers always watching you uh, – future where they actually claimed hey we're not here to cause any problems we're here to save you from all of your problems uh oh you've got some some uh you know birth defect or whatever we will replace it with cybernetics and you'll be better than ever except what you don't know is that all of this new technology and the cybernetics they're implanting in people and whatever is all connected to the god net and so the cyber papacy is always watching you sort of thing right uh, and then, um, what's another reality? Next to that, uh, in Russia is Tharkold. Tharkold is ruled by cyber demons. Uh, and, and the Russians actually, when, when the invasion first happened, the Russians nuked this bridge from a, the other world that connected the two when they were invading, uh, creating this sort of reality radioactive wasteland and so tharkold is like one part hellraiser one part uh, uh mad max you know it's kind of got both things going on with it um down in egypt you have the nile empire which is like 1930s uh pulp superhero stories it's kind of indiana jones meets the shadow um and then in um India you, or South Asia, you have Aurorish, which is a classic Victorian horror, uh, werewolves and vampires and ghosts and that kind of thing. And then in East Asia, you have Pan Pacifica, which is uh, it's I always describe it as Resident Evil. Uh, there was, you know, the big mega corporation that's here to save the day that actually is the are the people that unleash the virus that is mutating people and causing all the, the disasters and whatever, um, you know. So those are sort of all the realities that have sort of invaded the Earth. But most of the Earth, like 
half of the Earth or so is still currently unconquered. It's still core Earth. And so there's a resistance movement uh, called the Delphi Council that is fighting back against the reality uh, invaders. And the idea is that your your party, your players, are all members of the Delphi Council and you go off on these missions uh, into the different realities. And you're all from maybe scattered from different realities and whatever as well. So you can bring your psionics and your magic and your uh, whatever cybernetics into uh, the different realities as you're going into them. And there's all kinds of um, ways that that plays out. So it's a really like the setting is what really hooked me into it. And then I got to know the the system a little more and realized how well it's built. Um, the system is designed to specifically to be cinematic. So it feels like you're playing in a movie, despite the fact that there is no movie that has done this genre mashup thing before. Right. Uh, and they do that in a few different ways. One, um, similar, I, it occurred to me as you were describing uh, the age system, Jeremiah, the idea of stunts and how you can do these crazy over-the-top things with them sometimes. Um, yeah. Torg Eternity has that built in as well. As, as players, uh, you are able to um, – you draw cards and you have a hand of cards with you at all times and you can play them occasionally. They're from the um, – the destiny deck and occasionally because you're special people you can play these cards and it allows you to do crazy things plus the dice explode so they explode on a 10 or a 20 when you roll a d20 and so you can get some like crazy impossible high rolls in fact there's certain cards you can only play if somebody gets a roll of 60 or more um you know and so it can get just crazy over the top cinematic and and wild right um to just you know, I, I like to describe the the cinematics of the game in one of the the sessions I played, which was during the original invasion of London. Um, there's you know there there's people turning into you know high fantasy creatures and whatever, and there's monsters running around, and then overhead there are dragons fighting jet planes, right? Because that's the kind of crazy mashups you can do in this kind of thing. And then the a dragon, a, a plane like crashes into Trafalgar Square where the players are, and a dragon who's been shot up and its wings are ruined like lands in front of it, uh, and you end up having to fight the dragon. And then one of the you know they're like completely overwhelmed by having to fight this this even injured dragon. And so one of my players like snuck around while it was distracted, got into the crashed jet, and then shot it in the back with a rocket because that's the kind of crazy things you do in Torg. Cool. Right? That's the kind of stuff you would see in a movie. Um, and so, yeah, so it's a really fun setting. It's a really fun system. Uh, and it's like my one of my favorite things about it is that it's set up to really function well as a series of one shots because every session is like, hey, here's your mission for the session. And then you finish that mission three or four hours later. Uh, and then, you know, you're done. And what, what do we want to play this week? Do we want to go into like crazy Resident Evil sort of horror? Or do we want to go into classic vampire horror? Do we want to go up and fight cyber demons with arm lasers and whatever? Uh, you know, you can tell all these different kinds of stories, but you're not stuck with any of them. Like it's a one shot and then you're out. 
And yet at the same time, when you sort of string all these one shots together, there's a larger cohesive story going on. Um, so it works really perfectly for my group in terms of, hey, we can't play D&D this week. Let's pull out Torg. Um, and the adventures are all built to scale really well. Because um, like when you're fighting, uh, you know, when you're, there's an encounter, it's always like, hey, there's this many creatures per per hero. And so the, the balance is always there because it works, right? So... That's a really, really short version of Torg. Questions? Um, well, let's go with the question we've asked about the others. Why would D&D players want to try Torg? Yeah, so so on one hand, uh, Torg is is crunchy like D&D is to a degree, right? It has, like, if you like the, the mechanical... Uh, combat elements of D&D, Torg will feel comfortable to you, right? I've got some players at my table who, uh, when we've tried doing more like story games, like a, like a Fate or a Fiasco, they kind of reject the concept. It's just not their style of play. Um, and, and Jeremiah used to be at my table, so he might know who I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but when I play Torg, they're, they're into it. Like, there's enough crunch for them to really, like, it feels familiar and comfortable. You're still rolling a D20 to figure out whether you're successful on stuff, and you're trying to get a target number. Now, the way that D20 functions and whatever, because of the exploding dice and there's other things going on, it, it, it functions a little differently, but there's still some familiarity there. Um, uh, and then... But then it adds just enough of this cinematicness to it that you can do these crazy over-the-top things but also build in these sort of narratives to the crazy things that you're doing um, that it it doesn't turn it into like a crunchy story game. But it kind of starts to inject some of those elements of being able to control the narrative. One of the things I didn't talk about was the drama deck, which is how you determine an initiative. Uh, every round of combat, you flip over a card, and it either says the heroes go first or the villains go first. The order doesn't matter. But each card is listed as uh, it has like a certain title to it, right? So it might be like, aha, we have you now, right? And, which is sort of a, a classic sort of trope from from a you know, a corny sort of action movie, right? Sure. And, and so, and so, in that one, it might be like, "Hey, the villain gets to go first, and um, the heroes suffer this specific condition, right? This thing that happens uh, that then builds into the narrative. Like each round is a little bit extra dramatic." Because you never quite know how it's going to play out. Maybe the heroes are going to get a big boost. Maybe the villains are going to get a big, big boost. Uh, and it, it, each round works out a little bit differently. Just not enough that it feels weird, but just enough that it, it it just adds a little bit of variability. So it's a little more exciting each round. It's not you never get the same thing over and over again. Um, so does that answer the question? I suppose, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? Uh... In the game of Tor, could one bring to D and D? Yeah, so um, I think there's a few things. I mean, obviously, there's some ideas that you could take into D and D in terms of of how to construct a series of one shots uh, in a D and D session. Like, there's certainly ideas there, but that's a, that's more of a story thing than anything, right? Um, yeah. I, I think the biggest thing that I take from Torgan to D&D is that attitude of, oh, no, if they want to do, like, crazy, over-the-top, but super fun things, um, we can find a way to do that, right? Um, I don't know that there's anything really strongly mechanically. I'd be tempted to try out, like, a Torg-style uh, 
card system for initiative just to try something a little different because um, it, it works so smoothly and it adds so interesting variability. But somebody would have to design that, and, and it's not something you can really do on the fly. Well, uh, one thing that could possibly be adapted that it would be related, but you would need to create your own to be it as a deck. In second edition, there was combat and tactics, mm. and they had a t they had an initiative table that where special events could happen mm -hmm. in in one of the versions of initiative in that one. You could grab it from that, which is sort of sort of close enough to DNA fifth edition to be able to or that you could tweak it and then create your own deck of cards for it and do, to do a drama deck type situation. Well, and honestly, I feel like I could just use the Torg Eternity drama deck in D&D. Okay. &D. I would just have to slightly tweak the meanings of some of the terms. Like fatigue in, in uh, Torg Eternity means that you're taking shock damage. Well, shock damage is not a thing that exists in D&D, &D, right? So you might have to just tweak sort of what some of the terms mean, then use the exact same cards and, and not have to create anything new. It would it be would that be equivalent to the exhaustion levels in D and D, or is exhaustion levels in D and D too? Yeah, no, exhaustion D &D. levels are too too harsh. So the idea of Torg is uh, is basically everybody only has three hit points, if you will. Uh, they're you know wounds, uh, but then you also have these shock levels. So if you take a certain amount of shock damage, then you might fall unconscious, but you won't die from it, right? If you take uh -huh. a certain number of wounds, then you die, uh, but you work really hard not to take wounds. <laughs> so. Uh -huh. I think that uh, one of the things you could take away from Torg, uh, and you can do in D and D, um, is but it it requires a little more effort. Mm. Let's say uh, is uh, you know play with genre expectations. Mm -hmm. Just just go Gonzo. You and know D and D has a long history of that too. I mean, one of the yeah, early it, adventures was was uh, exploring a spaceship, right? Right, and there's uh, um, there are others where you end up in a futuristic city. I mean, mm -hmm. there's some craziness to be had. Science fantasy was an element early on. Anybody who's read the Jack Vance stories can find some science fantasy elements in those, too, and Vance is where we get our magic from. Mm -hmm. um, so it's part of the, the bones of D&D. And if you read the DM, uh, DM's guide and a couple of other things, you can toss in some genre bending stuff. Absolutely. You, you want to have the cyborg, uh, you know, horror show from another dimension invade your D and D world? Sure, do that. You can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you know, change the stats on some monsters. Give the bad guys some laser rifles. Which, which, which are statted in the DMG. You don't even have to come up with new things. There's lasers and stuff yeah. in there. Uh, you want to have, uh, you know, them crossover with, uh, like, some Indiana Jones-esque pulp adventure mm -hmm. group shows up. You can do that. Yeah. Uh, especially especially if you're things. playing an Eberron. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, the... Genre bending is absolutely possible in D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. You may have to do a bit more work. Like, you may have to reskin some monsters. You may right. have to reskin a few other things. But it's doable. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 you know, it breathes some new life into what you're, you know, the, the old game. Uh, so that's definitely a lesson you can take from Torg and Rifts and uh, some of the other sort of genre bending 
Absolutely. Uh, yeah, multi settings. Well, if anything, all three of us have this consistency of of uh, a multitude of genres in all of our games, right? Sure. Yeah. So, I, I think that. Um, so to wax nostalgic, uh, <laughs> yeah, I played D and D early on, uh, like eighty one, eighty two. I think is when I got my first box set, um, and I've been playing for a long time. And there came a point shortly after I started playing D&D where I went and tried something else. Um, I played Marvel superheroes. I played Top Secret. And, um, did you ever uh, play Boot Hill? That was one of mine. I did not play Boot Hill, uh, <laughs> but I did play uh, Star Frontiers. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, then I went back to D&D and I played that for a while. And then towards the late end of... Of, of second edition, I got a little bored with it um, because sometimes you get burnout, right? And I went and tried a bunch of other things. I played Vampire, I played Rifts, I played a bunch of other games that were out there. And I think, and then I would come back to D and D mm-hmm. and go back to these other games and swing back and forth. And my enjoyment of D and D has been improved by my enjoyment of other games. Yes. And that's and a, that, is, that was going to be my lesson from your story, is uh, you don't have to wait until you're burned out on D&D. If you mix it up every now and then, it, you can yeah. just keep it fresh all along. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 my gaming style for all my games was fundamentally changed by several of the other games I played. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of how I think about games are supposed to work was changed when I read the game Amber, mm. which has no dice in it. Sorry. I also have a wide experience for games. My first game that before D&D was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Under of Strangeness, because that's what you do when you're a 13 year old in the nineties and you're like the turtles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> So I've, I played I've got some of the books on my shelf right now. Yeah. Great yeah. book. Oh, and I started there. I was babysitting. I was bringing with the kids and had fun with that. And then went to D&D. But I have a list of... I've started a spreadsheet of when I play games. I list all. I have over 100 game systems that I've played. And some of them I can't... I, some of them are... I play are currently in playtest mode for people. But there's so many wide variety of different games, different genres, different styles of game that are out there. And all of them can be useful for getting lessons into playing D&D or stuff that you can possibly grab anything into. Like, from for an example, from of, of the souls in Gumshoe and Knights Black Agent, there's the conspiracy pyramid mm-hmm. as a mechanic, which basically is how an organization is set up set up or various organization and, and there are links that way you can try you know, so you can do that if in D&D have the various organizations various factions that you have available so there's always stuff that you can grab from any game and just adapt it either to bring it to your D&D well, game and I would even, uh, I, say I would go even a, a step further and generalize that even more Sometimes it's not even about taking elements of a game and just porting it into into D&D. Sometimes it's a matter of, oh, 
this is how this game system sort of deals with these conditions. And now when I'm presented with similar conditions in my D&D game, I have another tool in my toolbox. And it's just a matter of a mentality and a flexibility of the mind that that exposure to other ways of doing things um, broadens your ability to do, right? And I think it's not even – I don't even necessarily know that like I need to steal – whole cloth ideas from a game no. to make it valuable to my to playing D&D or any other game, right? But the more you play, the more you're exposed to, the more variety, the more the possibilities of what you could do will occur in your in your brain when you're playing a game. Exactly. So, there's so much wide variety of games, there's thousands upon thousands of games there. Go out there, play games. Go play some games, Have fun. guys. Absolutely. All right. So, I'm uh, on those poignant final thoughts <laughs> i'm gonna go ahead and call that the end of the episode because we are uh well over time so i want to thank noble knight for supporting us i want to thank all of the listeners who support us as well either by going to and using our affiliate links for amazon or dms guild when you go to the tome or by supporting us directly at patreon.com slash the tome show just like keith brian jill sanders leonard pelche jeremiah mccoy doug palmer aviv and my new favorite patron dm jazzy hands uh <laughs> i also of course want to thank uh eric for joining us eric where can people find you on the internet the easiest way would be to find me at, on twitter which would be at eric m pax so e-r-i-c-m-p-a-q and jeremiah mccoy uh as well as being a fantastic patron of the show I want to thank you for being a guest of the show tonight. Uh, where can people find you on the interwebs? Um, well, I, I maintain a, a website, jeremiahmccoy.com, uh, where I maintain a blog and I put links to all the stuff I'm, I'm working on. And I'm Tech Noir on, uh, on uh, Twitter. There you go. Uh, and if you want to get a hold of any of them or the Tome Show in general or me or anybody else who does stuff around here, uh, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. Uh, if you want to tell uh, Tracy how much you missed her in this episode, you can contact her. She is at Sarah Dark Magic. That's Sarah with an H. And if you want to tweet the show, it is at the Tome Show. Uh, that is episode 318, where we have, uh, you know, explored some of our options in this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The I'm on the wall.